the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Rob Black and your money. And now, here's Rob Black. I believe today's podcast is going to be all over the place. I'm not quite sure why. I just get the feeling it's going to be. First and foremost, strength in 2011 and 2012, in my opinion, comes without any government stimulus. I feel very comfortable on where we are. I think you're going to see GDP in the 25 to 3.5% range this year. Solid increase in consumer spending and a modest pickup in business investment. The second half of the year is going to be notably stronger than the first half. As accounting measures push a small rebound in construction spending into the third and fourth quarters. GDP in 2012 should pick up due to hiring prospects continuing to grow and investment demand picking up steam. I think there's a greater likelihood to be revised higher by analysts than lower. I think there's improved feelings about job security that have translated into stronger than expected levels of consumer spending. And I see that lasting a couple years, not a couple months. A couple years is two years. Consumption growth is expected to be the main driver for economic growth. Job security by itself should help spending this year. As people are starting to see that businesses are expanding and hiring and not cutting and, and uh, dropping people. Combination of an increase in income with stable business expansion should also end the downturn in construction. GDP growth is going to exceed 3% for the next four quarters at approximately 3.5% uh, in 2012. If things go right, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. Consumption increased 4.4% in the fourth quarter last year. That growth was achieved through a combination of aggregated income gains and a decline in savings. More importantly, government invention not required. Growth in consumption also came despite ongoing challenges with high debt loads. You know, what are some of the risks that are out there? If spending deteriorates is the biggest one. Large debt load may force consumers to pull back on spending. A rise in employment could also increase demand for housing and thus improve housing prices. That could lead to a decline in savings. Republicans retook control of the House of Representatives and made it a key objective to shrink the deficit. If they could achieve this goal, that could be negative. Deficit reduction measures most likely are going to come from cuts in government programs and not an increase in taxes. Since 17% of non-farm payrolls comes from the government sector, there may be significant payroll losses that could have detrimental effects. Risk to the investment, equipment, and software forecast. Congress passed a tax deduction for new investments purchased in 2011. That can act as an incentive for business to expand more than expected in 2011. That key tax break, you know, the key tax to the tax break is whether or not it pulls demand forward from 2012 and hurts 2012, or if it just gets things started sooner rather than later. Inventory is something I keep an eye on. 
Inventory growth is based upon steady growth and expected demand levels. If businesses believe demand is going to be weaker, the inventory growth can deteriorate it. Government spending, obviously, a, a big one for a lot of Americans to, you know, one thing that we hate, but one thing that's out there. Aggregate state and local government expenditures are going to contract through 2011 as lower tax receipts for spending cuts. Federal government growth should remain stable unless Congress passes a deficit reduction measures, which, again, no one's really expecting. So total government expe- sp- total government spending, state and federal, is supposed to be about uh, down two-tenths of one percent in 2011 and 2012. So... I feel pretty good about 2011 and 2012. You know, I think we are stuck in a prolonged employment recovery. You know, actual employment growth path is moving in a stronger direction um, than it did after the 1990 and 2001 recessions. The initial claims levels have settled below the upper bound, 410, 425,000, the recovery zone. So, again, it's nice. We're going to keep an eye on inflation, monetary policy. You know, inflation expects to remain muted, so monetary policy should stay muted for the short term. I'm liking what I'm seeing on many, many, many levels. Now, some of the economic data today, now that we've got 2011 and 2012 looking good, some of the economic data today, retail sales increased less than expected. It's really hard to isolate the effects of January snowstorms on the retail sales report, but we remember hearing, you know, there's a lot of snowstorms, right? And that does play a negative role. Businesses that rely on fair weather conditions like restaurants and construction suppliers, they stumbled during the month. Online merchants saw an increase of about 1.2%. It's important to note that even though sales were weaker than expected, they weren't bad. Core sales, which strip out the volatile motor dealers, increased four-tenths of a percent. That's not bad. The December drop was the first decline in core sales since May 2010. Core retail sales uh, and overall retail sales look pretty positive to me. A look at the headline retail sales level would suggest the winter weather conditions did play a significant role. You know, there, there, there was not the reason for the weaker than expected retail sales report in January. The downside surprise was probably a result of consumers simply not being able to leave their homes and purchase goods at neighborhood stores. It's not a disruption in income growth. The only stores that are going to be able to make up lost ground are, are restaurants. I'm sorry, the only ones that can't pick up lost ground because once you missed a dinner, you missed dinner. And in bars, most other places can you know have you come in later. Now, as people stayed home, home utility bills, which factor into service consumption, they will be higher in January than expected. So people will spend less money. Now, the retailers that did the best in January, building materials did awful. Auto parts did well, but food and gasoline stations and general merchandise did pretty good. The non-durables, furniture, not so good. You might have heard recently that research in motion, no, 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 that Nokia and Microsoft might you know, really join up forces. I went and looked up the R&D budget for all the big players, Nokia, Google, Apple, Microsoft, and research in motion. I might be missing one because I'm always tired these days. But since 2007, it's interesting that Microsoft and Nokia have spent roughly 7 to $8 billion per year in research and development. Google went from two billion in two thousand seven up to nine billion, and now they're back to about two and a half billion, three billion. Whereas research in motion has basically gone from almost nothing to about one and a half billion in R and D. And interesting, Apple's gone from about a billion in R and D to two billion in R and D. So Nokia and Microsoft are massively outspending, massively outspending the competition in R and D. 
And it's not paying off in the world of cell phones. I look at what venture capital is backing at times as far as new ideas and projects. It gives me a sense for platforms that are being um, accepted. And and here's one a little bit interesting. There's a company called Index Ventures. I've got a partner named Mike Volpe. And basically what he said recently in Geneva was a significant portion of our investment dollars in the next five years are going to go into Android. So they're going to invest in companies that use Android as an operating system. Google. And he says this is a reversal from a few years ago when many you know funding startups focus purely on software. Uh, the operating system surge in growth has piqued the interest. You know, Google's accounted for about 33% of smartphone shipments in the fourth quarter, up 8.7% from year level. Android's poised to become the biggest phenomenon of mobile devices, much as Microsoft software was on personal computers. Windows runs more than 90% of the world's PCs. Android's is the next Windows, so says Volpe. Now, his company has already invested in Android-focused companies like Lookout. They raised about $20 million. They offer security software and services for devices powered by Android. Uh, BlackBerry and Windows. McAfee would be a competitor. More than 5 million customers use Android devices. Most of its 5 million customers use Android devices. Android's been the largest and fastest growing, I think, growing part of their business. So Volpe, again, he's a partner with this uh, equity company, sees Android running as much as 65% of all smartphones, e-readers, tablet computers uh, globally in three to five years. And one interesting thing that he said is Google's software is about a fifth of the tablet market already. And most of us are going to have a tablet and a phone, maybe a reader. Not every child's going to have a PC, but every child will have a tablet. You'll have much greater reach and demographics such as the young and the elderly. So I'm with him. I think he's more right than wrong. He's currently looking at startups that are developing games for Android devices, mobile gaming companies focused, you know, on uh, Apple have already proven to be a gold mine. Game industry research says that, you know, amongst the 10,000 respondents worldwide that it found that 52% of Americans who own Apple devices play games on them. It's, you know, again, I'm just throwing it out there. Venture capital, smart money in theory. Where will they throw it? Where will that money land? Google's not a bad idea. Let's talk predictions real quick. Predictions are dangerous as hell. And explains why I don't try to make too many of them. And I put very little faith in others. I'll throw out a good stock idea or two on occasion. Every once in a while someone makes a prediction that's... It makes so much sense that you can't help but agree. And Jeffrey Hirsch has a belief that Dow Jones Industrial Average is going to hit 38,820 by 2025. Now, Hirsch, I've met this guy, and he's a bit of a cuckoo guy. He And I say that with love. He's editor-in-chief of Stock Traders Almanac, a well-known publication within Wall Street circles. Hirsch thinks the Dow is going to experience a super boom starting in 2017 and ending with the Dow reaching 38,820 in 2025. Now, I don't know about any super boom, but the chances of the Dow reaching 38,820 by 2025 are actually pretty damn good. You know, for the Dow to reach 38,820, it would have to return about 8.8% annually. And that's quite ordinary. The average annual return for the S&P 500 between 26 and 2009, 1926 to 2009, was 9.8%. Now, Hirsch's prediction is a full 10% less than the historical return. So his prediction is not nearly as astonishing as it sounds. Now, it depends on what the Dow adds and takes away from um, their components. 
If the Dow grows at 10% average annual rate, which it's done in the past, it'll hit 50,000 by 2025. So, you know, it, it could disappoint you. Uh, but I feel pretty comfortable in these numbers based on history, based on capitalism. Sadly, there's a lot of people who think the stock market's best days are behind us. I think it remains the course. So I'd be patient. Again, I wish I could convince everyone on that. I know the hell that I can't. Let's talk about the protest in, that we've seen recently in Tunisia and Egypt and some of the things that we might be able to garner out of it some of the insights that we might be able to take, um, some of the things to worry about going forward, some of the things that are positive. I, I think we certainly have a lot of this going on. Outside the political arena, which, again, I'm not all that stressed about. I'm just not that affected. The protest in Egypt and Tunisia had a profound domino effect on governments in the Arab world. Several regimes, several regimes have... Uh, headed off protests in their own countries. So in Yemen, President Allah Salah announced that he would not run again after his term in 2013. He had ruled for 30 years. In Algeria, President Al-Badiziaz promised to lift the country's state of emergency in the near future. That rule has been in place since the early 90s. In Jordan, King Abdullah fired the prime minister and replaced his entire cabinet in order to begin implementing political reforms. In Syria, President al-Assad announced support for political reforms that would include new municipal elections, amongst other ideas. Now, clearly, oil is the big story here. So the spread between where oil levels traded then and now, and in that particular part of the world, hit record highs. As revolution continues to churn, a lot of eyes have turned on another Middle Eastern country. It's Saudi Arabia. They represent a potential do- domino that could you know, become monumental. It's unlikely if it fell. Historical police state, Saudi Arabia faces many of the same problems that Egypt does. High unemployment, rising un- inflation, low wages, rampant corruption amongst their leaders. One big key difference is that they've got tons of wealth. So they could cut off some of their economic problems. Over the weekend, I hear they gave 1000 dinars to all families. So if an uprising occurred in Saudi Arabia, it would be the minority Shiite population in the eastern part of the country. They happen to be where the country's vast oil reserves lie. Historically, the kingdom has attempted to placate the Shiites by using petrodollars to create jobs and other entitlement programs. However, right across the Persian Gulf lay Shiite Iran and President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Uh, he would be more than happy to stir the pot to help with an uprising. Another area that it could come from is a women's rights movement from a population of females that have been increasingly emboldened. Gender roles in Saudi Arabia have been handed down from Sharia law and tribal cultures and that strictly limit what women can and can't do. Now, there could also be an extremist uprising supported by al-Qaeda. Prior to 9-11, the House of Saud copiously financed the proliferation of fanatical teachings of Islam. In the years after 9-11, when extremists became named and attacked in order to targets in the kingdom, the country began severely cracking down. So while that is all but forced the groups further underground, they nonetheless remain, you know, variable. Saudi Arabia holds one fifth of the world's oil, and it's really the only country capable of turning up the spigot in case of a real uh, supply disruption. Saudi Arabia represents the U.S.'s third largest import partner. In November 2010, the most recent data, the U.S. imported 285, 258,000 barrels of oil. 
look at the top five largest sources, and you see Canada's number one at 59,000 barrels. Mexico, number two, at 36,000 in a month. Saudi Arabia, 33,000. Venezuela, 24,000. Nigeria, 24,000. So both Canada and Mexico are producing from oil fields that you know are in maturation. They're old. From 2004 to 2009, imports from Mexico have decreased over 31%, which has coincided with a 20% rise in imports from Canada in the same time frame, virtually offsetting each other. However, the fact that oil fields these two countries are drawn from are currently in maturation highlights the importance of Saudi oil. It's going to take a lot to create an uprise in the likes of, of Egypt in Saudi Arabia and to create a problem that would be disruptive. So potential supply disruption would raise the price of oil. That's what we'd have to deal with. It would translate into gains for high beta energy names like British Petroleum, Chevron, ConocoPhillips, ExxonMobil. Royal Dutch Shell and Total, all publicly traded, tickers BP, CVX, COP, XOM, RDS, and TOT. Crude prices did move higher. It could lead to real changes in legislation for alternative energy, which would be huge gains for A1, HEV, Plug Power, PLUG, CLNE, VLNC, and Tesla, TSLA. So there's no substitute for crude oil in the near ter- to medium term, and thus keeping oil flowing out of Saudi Arabia is in our best interest. So how can we delever or leverage out? We can increase offshore drilling. We can reconcile the offshore reserve potential with the environmental safety risks. We can make alternative energy more attractive in the near term through incentives like tax breaks and other forms of government subsidies. So while oil is selling off in reaction to mark resignation, the continuing unrest in the Arab world, it adds a fear premium to crude prices in case there's a, a disruption. It's worthy of noting, people. I'm not making this stuff up. It's just worthy of noting. You know how I oftentimes say that I like big buybacks, and uh, especially during down markets. It's interesting to note, I just did some research on this in particular, and companies tend to be poor market timers. They repurchase a higher value of shares as prices increase and cut repurchases as prices decline. Analysis shows a striking outperformance in companies that were good market timers in the latest downturn in 2007 and 2008. The good market timers consist of roughly 80 companies out of the S&P 500. They repurchased a greater value of shares during the worst of the downturn in 2007. And again, if you look at the you know, the S&P 500, from 2006 it rose from 1,200 to about 1,500 in 2008. And then it slowly started to drift down to about 800 in 2009. Poor market timers consist of roughly 340 companies that repurchased a lower value of shares during the worst of the downturn. So the good market timers are up 25% of repurchasing their shares, while the poor market timers are down 23%. Now that's not to say that market timing – that's not to say that share repurchases are bad. It just shows you that they too make massive mistakes when trying to do it right. I hate variable annuities. I still do. Uh, there's one company, Emeritus, it's got a nice short-term annuity that's appropriate for some, but not all. Um, variable annuities, you know, the basic is a variable annuity is basically a tax-deferred investment vehicle. It comes with an insurance contract, usually designed to protect you from a loss. Thanks to that insurance wrapper, earnings inside the annuity grow tax-deferred, and the account isn't subject to annual contribution limits like those of other tax-favored IRAs. Variable annuities can be immediate or deferred. A deferred annuity... Uh, the account grows until you decide it's time to make withdrawals. 
fees, fees, and more fees is the big problem. It's typically a full percentage point more than an average open-ended mutual fund just on the investment alone because there's subcontracts, variable annuities. Fees don't stop there. A lot of the annuities act like B shares where paying a commission from the ongoing fees. The average contract fee is about 30 to 35 plus bucks. There's no death benefit. The death benefit basically guarantees that if your account will hold a certain value should you die before an annuity begins payment. With basic accounts, typically means that your beneficiary will at least receive the total amount invested, even if the account has lost money. For an added fee, typically it's called a stepped up or earned up a small amount of interest. Uh, it's just awful. The taxes, variable annuities are taxed at ordinary income tax rates. For most investors, that's a whole lot higher than the long-term capital gains tax. So it's a lousy estate planning vehicle. There's no getting around the income tax due on annuities. You could switch to a low fee variable annuity would be the right way to do it if you had if you're stuck in an annuity. That's my advice. I'm sticking to it. Hey, that's about all the time that I have for today. Uh, take care. Have a good day. I'll talk to you soon. And again, thanks for all the support.
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.